So we've been going through uh, the book of John here uh, and, and, uh, over the past couple months um, and have been just studying, you know, kind of verse by verse as we've been going on and seeing, you know, uh, different things we learn about uh, through different interactions that Jesus uh, has as he's, you know, been starting his personal ministry um, and, and going throughout, uh, as we've been going throughout the book. Uh, there's a, you know, a verse in the end of John, John chapter 20, 31, which basically says, I, it's an author writing, obviously, and saying, I wrote all these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that in him you can have eternal life. And so that's really, you know, anytime I think about reading anything from the book of John and, and here this morning and preaching through a passage in the book of John, uh, that, that's my hope, is that you would come away from this and you would see Jesus and you would see and believe that he is the Christ and that in him is eternal life. So I'm going to be picking up uh, in John chapter 4 with that as a, a little bit of a background and picking up where Clint left off uh, a couple weeks ago. But before we do that, let me, let me just pray for us quickly that God would meet us here, uh, and then we'll get in, into the passage. Uh, Father, we, we come now, and uh, we want to worship you this morning. We want to worship you in spirit and truth. Uh, so God, we, we need you. In order for that to happen, we need you to meet us uh, where we are we need you to meet us uh, as we're reading and hearing from your word. Uh, so God, I ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I'm picking up in chapter 4, uh, verse 19 that was just read. Uh, Clint, a couple weeks ago, preached on uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. This may be familiar to some of you if you've, been, if you've grown up in the church and you've heard some of these stories before, but it was a story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman um, at the well. Um, and him interacting with her. And, and as Clint spoke, uh, he referenced uh, some of the, uh, he gave kind of a summary of the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. So he, he kind of gave some background there. And that, that context is going to be helpful for us this morning as we look at this, this passage this morning. So I'm going to read what he read uh, from, from a man named Don Carson to kind of summarize the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And he, he said this, or Don Carson wrote this, um, After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners, who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some, of, some form of their ancient religion. After the exile, Jews, returning to their homeland, viewed, Samar viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 B.C., the Samaritans erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So there's all sorts of, uh, there's, there's a rivalry here between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. They did not get along at all. They didn't even talk to each other in a casual sense. So really, what Jesus is doing here and having this conversation with a Samaritan woman is very shocking. Because people didn't even have that kind of casual, hey, how are you conversation. They didn't run in the same circles at all. Much less did they do what Jesus is doing here, where he is really confronting her with the reality of her sin, with the truth about who he is. He's really engaging her on a heart level here. This is just totally shocking. And, and as, Clint put, as Clint put it a couple weeks ago, he said that Jesus was forcing her to deal with the inner places of her heart. He's forcing her to deal with the places where she might have been unwilling to go on her own if it weren't for Jesus coming and having this conversation with her. And so that's where we pick up today. She's just admitted that she has had five husbands and that she's living with someone now who's not her husband. 
She admits that the things that Jesus told her are true, that she's really been looking to be filled in the things of this world. She's been just scraping for anything to gain fulfillment. And Jesus is showing her it's not in where you've been living your life. And she's admitting, yes, that is true. Now, we do know at some point in this story here that she is going to place her faith in Christ. Uh, we know as if you look towards the end of chapter 4, we see that through her testimony, many more people come to faith in Christ. So we do know that, that they're, they're moving that way. She will place her faith in Christ here soon. But I don't think that where we pick up today, I don't think this question that she asks is really a question that's springing out of the faith that's in her heart. I, I think what's going on here is that Jesus has been engaging her heart He's been kind of getting at these places of her life that are probably somewhat a little bit uncomfortable for her to talk about. And so she wants to ask this question as a way to deflect, as a way to try to let, let's bring this back up to the surface here. And so she starts in verse 20 with what Mallory read, where she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So what, are, what is she saying here? Why, why is she asking that question? What is, what is she getting at here? She's really pointing to the tradition of her people and pointing out really a key difference between Jewish religion and Samaritan religion. And it was the matter of where they conducted their worship. You know, the Jews had the temple. They had a temple that they would go to where they would offer sacrifices. But the Samaritans, they had a mountain. We referenced it earlier in the Don Carson quote, Mount Gerizim. Is one that they had built, or it was one where they believed, many people believed, that Abraham, years and years and years ago, and Jacob had set up an altar to the Lord and offered sacrifices there. And so when they were thinking about a place where they ought to worship, they built a temple in Mount Gerizim, and that's where they performed their worship. So that's, that's what she's saying. She's saying, so who's right? You know, you, you Jews, you go to the temple, and we Samaritans go up to this Mount Gerizim, and we worship there. So who's right? Now, Jesus is going, obviously, he wants to continue to get at her heart because he wants to bring about true change in her life. So he's going to engage her with the question. He's going to answer her question, but he doesn't want it to stay surfacy. She, she wants to go to the surface just, and just kind of say, who's right, Jews or Samaritans, so I can just pick one and do the right thing, and then we'll be good and, and on our way. But Jesus doesn't want to go there. He wants to go deeper. He wants to go into her heart. And so what he's wanting to show her now is that it's not where you worship that's important, but it's who you worship, and it's how you worship. That's what's ultimately important, and that's what Jesus' response tells us. Now he addresses her here, um, and he addresses her, and he says, woman, and I want to just point this out, that's not as disrespectful as it sounds uh, in our day and age. Uh, he referred to his uh, mother this way back in John chapter 2, um, and we talked about it there, that it's, it's really, it's more like him saying ma'am or madam. Um, and and it's, it's a way to, to kind of show, hey, I, I want to make sure you hear this. I want to make sure you listen to this because I'm addressing you personally here. So that's what he's doing here. It's not a disrespectful thing, but he's saying, I've got something important that I want you to hear as the answer to the question that you just asked. So in verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's essentially saying, you're asking the wrong question. There's a time coming when it doesn't matter where you worship. Now, he uses a specific word here at the end of, of the sentence that he just spoke that I think is kind of interesting. And as I was preparing this week, I came across another sermon that, um, on this passage. And, and there were some insightful things in that sermon that I, that I thought would be beneficial to, to share with you guys this morning. 
So if you notice the, the question that she asked, you know, she said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain or worship on this mountain. So she's pointing to, to the traditions, to, to her fathers before. But when Jesus answers the question, he says, it's neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem where you will worship the father. He, he's wanting to point out to her, there's only one father here that's important when it comes to worship. And I'm going to tell you how to worship the father. The traditions of those who went before you, those who are worshiping on the mountain, they're really of no value when it comes to worshiping the Father. So what, what does he want us to get out of kind of mentioning the Father? What are some things that we can draw, that our mind can be drawn to when we hear that phrase, and we hear that idea about worshiping the Father? I think there's a couple things. One is that Jesus wants uh, her in, this, in that setting, and then us as we're reading the stories, he, want, he wants us to be drawn to the fact that God, the one we are called to worship, is a Father. That he has father-like characteristics and father-like qualities. And that he has children that he loves. And we know from John chapter 1, verse 12, that his children are those that receive Jesus and believe in his name. Those are the children of God. And Jesus is wanting to draw us back to that. He's wanting to draw us to the fact that in order to worship the Father, we must believe in Jesus. We must receive Jesus and believe in his name. In addition to just thinking generically about the children of the Father as, as those that believe in Jesus, I think when Jesus talks about the Father, when he brings, that, brings the woman right there to the Father, he wants us to also think about the Son. We see this all over the Gospel of John where the Father and the Son are mentioned one after the other. The Father loves the Son is what John 3.35 says. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, John 5.19 says. The Father is glorified in the Son, John 14, 13. Those are just a couple of examples, but it's all throughout the book of John where when we see the Father, when our attention is drawn to the Father, it's also drawn to the Son. And I think that's what Jesus wants here for us, that when we hear, I'm going to tell you where to worship, how to worship the Father, that we would be drawn back to the Father and ultimately also drawn back to the Son. Because we're going to find out now that the woman here who's engaging, who's talking with the Son, we're going to find out that the presence of the Son, the presence of the Son in worship is key to true, authentic worship. So again, it's not where you worship. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not where you worship, but it's who you worship that is important. So he continues on here with, with a pretty blunt statement uh, to the woman. And it's one that uh, would, would make some people feel uncomfortable um, I think if it were said to, to one of us today, we may even get upset or angry and, and may want to run away. Um, but he, he challenges her ancestors here. He challenges those that went before her. And he challenges the traditions that they held on to, and he says they were wrong. He says, everything that you've been taught, all, everything these people are doing is wrong. So he, he says in verse 22, he starts off, you worship what you do not know. Now I want to point out here, the you is plural. So he's not saying to the woman, you, woman of Samaria, you worship what you don't know. But he's saying, you, plural, all of you Samaritans worship what you don't know. This, the worship of the Samaritans is not true. It's not authentic worship. Again, that's, that's a pretty blunt statement. It's a pretty blunt statement to say, every one of you, all of your ancestors, all that you live with, you guys are all wrong. But that's what he's saying here. He wants to make sure he's clear 
That he's, he doesn't think, oh, well, if you just kind of change, you know, where you worship, then you'll probably be okay. He's saying, no, you're, you're wrong. Your worship is wrong. Now, why would he say that? that? Again, that's a very blunt thing to say. Now, we do know a couple things about the Samaritans already that, that I read previously. I uh, found in another commentary where it said this about the Samaritans, that they worshiped the God of Israel, the true God, but they were sunk into gross ignorance. They worshiped him as the God of that land as a local deity, like the gods of the nations. So they acknowledged God, but they were just kind of lumping him in with other gods. They were kind of taking this idea and, and molding it to wherever they felt met their needs, and that's who they were, they were worshiping. And so that's what Jesus is pointing out here, is that they're not worshiping him as the one true God. They're wrong in their worship, again, not because of where they worshiped, but because of who they worshiped. So he finishes his statement of saying, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. And he says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now here the we that Jesus is referring to is the Jewish people. He's saying the Jewish people worship what we know. Now I want to just take a second and say, this doesn't mean that Jesus is saying all Samaritans are wrong and all Jews are right. Because you can just flip almost anywhere else in any of the other uh, gospel books and, and even more in, in the book of John and see that Jesus is pretty harsh with some of the Jewish leaders. But he tells the Pharisees all the time, you worship what you don't know. He tells the Pharisees all the time, you're wrong. So what does he mean here? Why, why would he say here, we worship what we know? And I think it's because of this. I think what he means here is that the Jews teach that a Savior is coming to the world. And that Savior is key to knowing and worshiping God. He is what makes worship possible. And so Jesus can say to this woman, he can say, the Samaritans, you guys are all wrong, and you don't know who you worship because you're not depending upon the Savior in your worship. So your worship is not true, authentic worship. In response to this, John Piper says this, he says, In a pluralistic, multicultural, relativistic, shrinking world like ours, this will be harder and harder to believe in the years to come. The more people you know personally who are very religious, but who do not embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the harder it will be to believe that their worship is not true worship. But if the courage of your faith gives way, you will forsake the Jesus of the New Testament and join the world in creating your own. So he's saying here that this is what Jesus just did here is going to be harder and harder to do. It's a hard thing to see people who are religious people not worshiping the Son and be willing to stand up and say, you know what, you're wrong. Your worship isn't true worship. But that's what Jesus does here. He says, you know, you may think you're worshiping God, but you're wrong because you're not depending upon the Savior for that worship. Now, I think in, in reading this section of Scripture, I hope that as I'm reading and as I'm speaking, I hope that you're examining your own heart. Uh, obviously, this is a story about you know, Jesus speaking to a woman um, you know, thousands of years ago, but I think anytime we read a story like this, we should try to put ourselves in the shoes of those that Jesus is talking to. Now, we obviously don't have, you know, a Mount Gerizim that we go to today to worship, but I think we should still look at this story and begin to think whether or not our worship is true, whether or not our worship is authentic worship. What, what might I be doing or not be doing that would cause Jesus to look at me and say, you worship what you don't know? 
And, and I do want to say this, when we hear the word worship here, think beyond just the Sunday morning gathering like we're here today. Think about in, in your day-to-day life, in the, in the worship and the quiet of your own home. Are there things there that you're doing or not doing that would cause Jesus to say, you worship what you don't know? Your worship is not true, authentic worship. Now, I want to kind of keep diving into this a little bit, and I'm going to be a little bit blunt at points in the same way that Jesus was blunt with the woman here. And, and my intention is to hope, or my, my hope here is that you would examine your heart in light of the scriptures, that you would hear the word here, and that we, we know in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There may be some of you here who need to be reproved, who need to be corrected this morning. And so I hope the word of God would come and penetrate your heart and engage your heart over those things. Now, I don't, I don't know the hearts of many of you here, um, but I do know this. I know that there are many, many people all across our country who go to church week in and week out, who read their Bibles, but they're not worshiping God. They do those things ultimately to worship themselves. Maybe they go to church because they want to get out of church the same thing that they get out of being a member of a country club or the same thing they get out of attending a concert. Maybe they go because they want to spend time with a group of friends that they feel like so they can feel like they can have some status in this world. They do it because it's the social thing to do. Or it's a place maybe where they think, I can have some influence and some, some power here, and I don't have that in other areas of my, of my life. So I want to be part of the church for those reasons. But worship is, is the farthest thing from their mind. I read an article this past week that was talking about the same idea about how easily we slip into idolatry and how easily it bleeds into the way we view church on Sunday mornings. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, and so we're going to have it up, up on the screen here. But the, the writer wrote this, We must take care then not to assume that even in our religious environments where we put the scriptures under so many noses that it is Jesus, the exalted Christ, who is being worshipped. Likewise, every weekend, men and women file into church buildings in order to exult in the rhetorical skill of their preacher, to admire him and think of their church as his church, not Christ's church. Many of us file in each week to enjoy the conspicuous spiritual exercises of our brethren, We worship the worship experience. We tithe with expectation of return from heaven's slot machine. We dress to impress, and we serve serve and lead to compensate for the inadequacies in our hearts that only Christ can fill. Every weekend, hundreds of preachers extol a therapeutic gospel from the pages of the same Bible where the real gospel lies. To me, those are sobering words, and they're, they're challenging to my heart, because I think about this almost every week when I come to church. It, it's so easy for me to kind of walk in this door, and this just becomes, it's just become part of my life. It's part of the routine, where we come, we come in here, we come to, to this service, we sing a few songs, we spend some time in prayer, we hear a message, we sing another song, and then we go on, and it's just back to our everyday life. That's just the routine that we can get caught up in so easily and we can forget what this is all about. We can forget that this is truly about the worship of God in our time. And I can think back to a time, even over the past couple months, as I've been um, leading, leading some music up here, and there was a time when we were singing the song, Lord, I Need You. And it was just one of those weeks where, where I'd just come in 
And, and had, um, it was just a routine. It was kind of like, okay, we got to sing this song now. So that's what we're doing. That was the way my, my mind was thinking. And there, we were playing the song, and I, I hit a wrong chord, which happens a little more frequently than I would like when I'm playing music. Um, but I hit the wrong chord, and I started thinking about that as we're playing, about I wish I wouldn't have messed that up. And, and I, my mind is just so caught up in the what we're doing right here without thinking about this is about the worship of God. Now, thankfully, in that moment through singing, those, the words of that song, I was able to remind, you know, the Lord reminded me, I, I, Lord, I need you. This is not about just a, any kind of a performance thing or things going flawly. But this is about the worship of, of your people, of, of you, by your people. And, and it's just so easy. That in that moment, when I think back on that, I think about just how easy it was for me to just come in here and just think about playing some music or just going through the motions. It's just so easy for us to get into that to get caught up in that and to, to not think about truly the worship of God. And when I think about, you know, how that happens, how, how does that happen that we would come in here and we would forget that even in church, we're here to worship God? And it starts with our day-to-day life. Things just become so ritual and so routine when it comes to, you know, whether it's going to work or what, whatever, you know, you're going to be doing throughout the week that you lose sight of really wor- the worship of God. I was, uh, the article that I referenced earlier, it was actually also mentioned some verses in Isaiah 44, uh, verses 12 to 17. We're going to have them here on the screen in just a second. But, you know, I, I must admit when I was reading this article I didn't, and, and when I saw these verses, I never really read these verses before. Um, or the, if I had, they sure didn't stick out to me. Um, but I think this is a great picture of how we can move from the everyday tasks into idolatry almost automatically. So here here are the verses. They're going to be on the screen here. It says this. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Now, that struck me because the way it reads is just so matter-of-fact. He's doing these everyday tasks. You know, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool. The carpenter stretches a line. He cuts down cedars. I mean, it's just these everyday tasks, and then before you know it, he's built an idol. he's, He's not worshiping God. And we're no different. We're, we're no different than that. And so I think this is God's way. These verses are God's way to say, look at what you're capable of. Look at how you can get so caught up in the routine of life and not think at all about the worship of God, which leads us into idolatry. So I hope that you take some inventory of your life. You ask yourself, why, why do I come here each week? Why, why do I read the Bible when I'm at home? What, what about in the everyday task of your life? Is the worship of God really the goal there? Or are we just like the Samaritan woman who's been going to the place of worship, 
but was worshiping what we do not know. So, so where do we go from here? When we're faced with this inauthentic worship, where, where do we go? Jesus is going to take us to, to a place where he's going to talk to us about what true worship really is. So I'm going to pick up in verses 23 and 24, where he says this, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I do want to first look at what he means when he says the hour is coming and is now here. Because uh, I think it's, it's kind of interesting. He's saying that the hour is coming, meaning obviously it's not quite here yet, because there's still a work that the Son needs to do to enable this true worship. The Jewish sacrificial system, which is ultimately a pointer to Christ, is a pointer to the sacrifice that Jesus will make on the cross. But that's, that system is still in place. It still needs to be adhered to. The regulations there need to be adhered to. So he's saying the hour is coming. There, there's an hour coming when that's not going to be the place anymore. Um, but for right now, that's still in place. But obviously in that same breath, he says, but it's already here. And I think what he's pointing to is he's saying, I, I'm the fulfillment of that. Jesus is here. He is the one. He is the Savior. And he is on his way to the cross. He is on his way to pay the punishment that we deserve so that we can be children of God, so that we can truly worship him. So the hour is coming, but it's already here. The focal point is Christ. The Son is the key to worship. So when it comes to true worship, the best definition that I came across this week is this, that true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. So what does this worship look like? What, what, is, he, what, what is it going to look like for us to value or treasure God above all things? Jesus says we will worship in spirit and truth. So what, what does that mean? Because uh, as I was preparing this week, uh, I had a little bit of a hard time with this. I, I kept, you know, this whole idea of worshiping in spirit. I, I'm a type of person, I like something tangible. I, I like to be able to hold on to something and say, okay, that's something clear that I can do differently and, and therefore will be obeying this or adhering to this. But the, the more I, I got into it, I, I think there is something tangible here, but I think there's a lot of things that are intangible here. Um, and I think that's good for people like me, especially. So we're going to start with the intangible of worshiping in spirit. And what, what in the world would that mean? If we look back just to chapter 3, we see that Jesus says to Nicodemus, as he's talking to him about being born again, born again, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So I think we can take from this, when we say to worship in spirit, is that we must be born again in order to truly worship. We must be alive in our spirit in order to worship, and that's only possible through the work that God will do in our heart. We must be a living spirit. You know, before that, when we read our Bible, when we come to church, when we sing songs, our worship is not true. It's, it's inauthentic. We, we worship what we don't know. However, if we're, if we're born again, we can truly worship. You may have heard it before, even Jen and I were talking last night about, you know, there are times when before she was a Christian, she remembers being in a worship service and, and thinking, what's the big deal here? Because her, her spirit wasn't alive. She sees these people singing and, and sees people worshiping and thinking, what's the big deal here? But now, you know, post becoming a Christian, it's not that every time, you know, she just feels that way when we're singing, but 
there's the ability to truly worship because God's spirit um, is alive in here. God's spirit is alive in her. I think another element of this idea of the spirit is not just the idea of being born again, but I think it's to point us to the fact that true worship involves relationship. That God speaks to our spirit through the Holy Spirit living in us. So we have a relationship with him. That we're not robots, but we're people with emotions, with affections, and our worship should involve those things. Our true worship to worship in spirit will involve our affections towards God. So that's some of the intangible part, because I don't really have anything there that I can give you to say, so then go do this, and then you'll be worshiping in spirit. I, I can't really help you with anything practical on that one. You can't say to yourself, feel emotion for God, and all of a sudden you start feeling emotion for God. It just it doesn't work that way. There's something, there's a deeper mystery there. But you can pray for it. You, you can ask God for it. You, you can look to him in hope that he will give it to you and hope that he will give you a spirit that does love him, that does treasure him above all things. Now, for something a little more tangible, let's look to this idea of worshiping in truth. In order for our worship to be authentic, it must be based on the truth of the Bible. It must be based on the truth of who we are, the truth of who God is, the truth about who Jesus is and what he did for us. So if you're in a similar place to kind of what I referenced earlier, where you feel like you may come in here and you don't know if your heart is engaged, you don't know if you believe all the words of the songs that we're singing, you don't know if you believe the things that are being taught from your word, you get home and you read your Bible and it's just kind of words on a page, and there, there's not, it just feels like there's nothing there. You go through your day and you, you're not sure if God's really with you. You're not sure if he really loves you. I think you can start, the truth you can start with is a true confession. It's a true confession to God to say, God, my heart is not filled for passion with you like I know it needs to be to truly worship you. So we start with the confession of the truth of our heart and then we come back to the truth of who God is. We come back to the truth of what he did for us. We remind ourselves over and over and over again about the truths of the gospel. And if we don't, I don't think we'll truly worship. If we rely on our own idea of God, if we rely on kind of what we heard from someone else that just kind of sounded good, we thought we liked it, we're not truly worshiping. In the words of Jesus, we're worshiping what we do not know. You know, when we lived back in Minnesota a few years back, we were ministering to some college students, and uh, there was this point in time where uh, they had this kind of weekly praise and worship service, and a lot of college students went to it. They loved it. You know, they would just, you know, start in the true college student form and start at like midnight, and they would sing for two or three hours and, uh, and, and do that, and, and people just loved going to it. And I remember talking to a student afterwards and, uh, and saying, you know, he was just raving about it, and, and he was just, and I said, well, you know, what did you like about it? And he just kept saying, well, it was just awesome. It, it, it was just so awesome. God, God just rocked us. And I was like, okay, God, that's really cool. Like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that, that you got rocked? He's like, I, I can't even describe it. Like, it, it was just awesome. Like, we just, we just got totally rocked by God. There was, there was nothing more there. And, and to me, when I think back on, on interacting there with that student, I think that's neglecting the second part of what Jesus says here. That's neglecting the and truth part. There, there's no truth to it. Because I think that when we truly worship God, when we truly see him for who he is and see ourselves for who we are, we can connect with him. And I think we can come away 
and say, you know, I really met with the Lord during my time of worship. And you know what? When I met with the Lord, he showed me that he is a patient God. He, he showed me that he is a God of, of all comfort. He, he showed me that I really needed to trust him in this specific area of my life. There's, there's something tangible there because there's something true there. I, I think that's worshiping in truth. That's what, because the truth of God penetrates our heart. We can't neglect that in our worship. We can't just have our worship be this spirit emotion filled thing if there's no truth behind it at all. Martin Luther says this, and it's, uh, it'll be up on the screen, and it's a bit wordy, and there's some old words in here, so bear with it. Um, that's why I put it up on the screen so you could read along. But it, he says this I must take counsel to the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me, not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. And then Tim Keller elaborates on what Luther says there, and he says this, So Luther says that even after you're converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. That, to me, is a key to authentic, true worship that we continue to remind ourselves of the truth, because if not, we're going to go back to operating on these other principles. So we can start putting this together. It's another, um, the way that I heard this summarized this week that I thought was really helpful is this. It says, the fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed hands, lifted hands, and obedient hearts. So you could say that this, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then to respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, by treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. Now, I want to close and get back to our story with the woman here, where after saying these things to her, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Again, the, the writer of John saying, I'm writing these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He, Jesus, for one of the very few times in his ministry, he discloses who he truly is. He says, yes, I, I am the Christ. I, I am the one who has come. I am the key to true, authentic worship. Him being the Messiah who came, who's going to suffer, who, who's going to die, He's the one who gives us right relationship with God so that we can worship. He's the one that enabled the only chance we had for true worship. And I think it's at this moment that the woman gets it, that she sees Jesus for who he is, 
She sees him as the only way to truly worship God, and she begins to testify to this. We'll see this next week as we look at, uh, continue on in John chapter 4, where she goes and tells people about Jesus. And eventually that town comes to faith in Christ. So may we all grow in our understanding of worship. And may God give us the grace to truly worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to close our time with a prayer uh, that someone wrote, uh, someone by the name of Scotty Smith wrote um, on this this passage of Scripture. Uh, And it felt like a, a fitting way for us to end the sermon this morning. So bow your heads and pray with me as I read this prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Jesus clearly taught us you are seeking true worshipers, those who worship you in spirit and truth. You're seeking a doxological people, a people smitten with your glory, not a singular form or style, a gospelized people who love, worship, and glorify you with everything we have and are. May we be found to be just such a people. Whether we assemble in a majestic cathedral, a high school auditorium, a high-tech worship center, a thatched roof hut, a neighbor's great room, or an open-air sanctuary, show us how to worship you in spirit, in spirit, Father. By your Holy Spirit and the inner chambers of our spirit, we know that lip worship and will worship are not enough, for you're not honored when our hearts are far from you. By your spirit, enthrall our hearts again, with your holiness and your grace. Restore to us the joy of your sovereign salvation for us in Jesus. Bring us back to the love we had at first, love for you and love for others. Show us how to worship you in truth, Father, in keeping with the revelation of your word, the truth about who you are and who we are, the truth about how desperate, about our desperate need for redemption and perfect salvation you've given us in Jesus the truth about how we can best love and serve you, and the tragic truth about how we often prefer our idols to you. Continue to free us from every wrong notion we've ever had about you. Show us the difference between the traditions of men and the counsel of your word. We praise you for robing us in the perfect righteousness of Christ, the only basis upon which we can worship you today. We long for the day when we will only give you perfect worship, the worship you deserve and in which you delight. In Jesus' holy and loving name we pray, amen.